Mm -hmm. Let's start. Uh, just a couple of um, practical matters. Um, we've got a Sorry, this is, we've got a couple of, I'm so unused to this. We've got a couple of practical matters. Practical matter, yeah. Um, we've got a flyer ready to go out to Father. I think I've told you, I've talked with him. So we're set for the 20th. So mark that day off. Non-negotiable, everybody has to be here. That's. The 11th commandment on Sinai, so put it down in your books. Um, we're gonna, um, Father's gonna announce it to the congregation. We're gonna invite people and have them sign up online. Ellie does, apparently whatever, whatever media means the church has, and I guess there, um, there are many, they'll advertise it online, um, I guess to the whole group, and ask for signups. What we're going to do is this, so just put this in your mind for now, but it'll, it'll come out in a flyer. Doc, help me on this if I misremember. We'll meet at 5. Um, we'll set up and start eating at 5.30. And we'll, um, we'll start the movie at 6 so people could continue to eat. And for those who come late, you can come late. You know, I mean, it's, it's much earlier. But the movie's around two hours long, and I'd like to leave time to talk for a discussion and still leave early. So there may be some flexibility with that. That's not a fixed time, but that's roughly our goal, to get things started early and so people can eat. And people who come late can pick up their meals and eat while we watch the movie. It should be a casual, comfortable night. I mean, it's just a meal with a movie. Um, I think you'll enjoy the movie. I think some of you already know what it is. I'm not going to give it away. It's a good movie. Um, but you know that, that one of the reasons for showing it is to present a critical question to our congregation and the faith, which is, where are the Catholic artists today? That's a, that's a serious matter for me. There's lots of films coming out of Hollywood that you can call faith-based films. I think you all know that. Um, I get a little bit bothered by them because they have a commanding audience. Non-Christian audiences are watching them because they're not advertised as being Christian, so not explicitly Christian. But it's so clear they're faith-based. They're, they're fundamentalist. And I just, I'm concerned about the effect of the fundamentalist mind on the Catholic Church and our culture. It's something to be aware of. Um, we have to be grateful for Christians everywhere in our country. Um, they're giving their lives to Christ. But there's a difference between, you started that doc, didn't you, the recorder? There's a difference between the fundamentalist faith and Catholicism. It was an important enough concern for Benedict that he um, addressed it in Fidel, or, uh, Regensburg. Because in Regensburg, he's, his principal audience is um, Islam. But his secondary audience is fundamentalist Christianity because both of them deny a logos. It, it, 
their, their faith doesn't have the support of reason. And, you know, from all the works that we've done, um, certainly from literature before we ever made it explicit, that um, our Catholic faith is grounded in reason, in the rational, in the natural order. Grace perfects nature. We work with nature. We're glad for it. It's a joy. Our bodies are natural. We don't believe nature's corrupted. We believe it's wounded. But the logos is there. So um, most of these movies skip it, which means they tend to go around pain. They don't deal as directly with suffering. They're not going to deal as directly with evil in the way the Catholic Church is asked to do. So there are lots of important questions, you know, that have the good to our faith. So I hope it'll be a good movie. I hope everybody enjoys it, but I'd like to leave time for a discussion. But we'll start early. It'll be a potluck. I'm going to ask people who can come early to sign up for entrees so they can get it and people can't come until later to bring desserts. Just practical sorts of things like that. So, but set the 20th aside, okay? I think we're going to have a break, a week break before then. We'll plan to finish Orthodoxy next week, take a break, and then come back for the movie. Um, and then after the movie, we'll take a break again another week, and then we start on the Gospels. We will do Matthew, John, and Revelation. I'm looking forward to that. I hope it's going to be a surprise for you. I, I know you all know the Gospels, um, but I'm assuming that you're going to bring a lot to them that you've not brought before because of the work we've done. But anyway, th that's our plan, okay? Um, I would be so glad if everybody brought friends. You know, invite neighbors or friends or other parishioners, encourage them to come just to see what they think. We, you know, if we can increase the numbers here, I'd be so glad. Um, if anybody sees a name appear on that, you know, waiting list, just let me know so I can admit them. If you see any names pop up, okay? I think that's it. Suzanne, you wanted to pass out a... You'd, after what? Yes. As much as I'm sure of anything, Bob already knows the answer to that. <laughs> don't be surprised if we don't meet again until Christmas. What are you asking? <laughs> we'll finish Orthodoxy next week. We, um, I hope, I'm planning to start chapter 9 tonight. But it's, there's too much going on in both of those chapters to try to cover them in my mind tonight. So there's a lot. They're ending orthodoxy and there's a lot there. So what I'd like to do is try to be thorough in our coverage of eight romance of orthodoxy and then do nine next week. It's interesting that he did nine. I suspect that that wasn't an accident on his part. Okay. Um, you should have handouts. I've got, um, I only had Ellie run off a few copies of an essay. Um, if anybody would like a copy, let me know after class. It's long, it's 17 pages, it's, it's online, I gave you the link online. It's an essay written by Dana Goya, who's an American Catholic poet. He's a really good poet. I'd be surprised if he isn't named Poet Laureate sometime soon, but... Um, 
and then there's the outline and the um, two sets of poems. So we'll do the we'll do the poems in a minute. But first, I want to get to prayers. Hold on. I've got that. Okay. Let's. Um, can we? Can we? Any prayers? Is it Meredith? Is, is that Meredith? If you're okay, I'd like to pray for your dad again. Huh? Father-in-law. Father I'll call him your dad if you're. Um, any prayers, Connie? Yeah. Wow, for sure. Well, a friend of mine, Todd Kathleen, who's having a, he's on a cancer treatment and not sure it's working. What's his name again? Todd. Todd? Okay. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself in the Mass this morning and um, your presence through the day. Um, this last weekend, we, um, we commemorated um, John the Baptist's um, death, his sainthood. Um, he gave up his life for you. Um, he lived in the desert eating, existing on honey and locust. Um, he's the, I, I may be, boy, I'm, I'm always aware that I may be theologically on unsafe ground, but he's the first one that I remember who saw the implications of your life. He's the first one that said, um, the Lamb of God. That moment reminds me of Peter's moment when Christ asked who he was and nobody could say, and then Peter said, you're the Christ. Peter could not have come to that on his own. That John could have seen the full implications of your life to know that the whole Jewish tradition involving the sacrifice of the lambs and the lentils on the door, or the blood and um, all of it, to have seen that you were going to be the one to fulfill that tradition was an extraordinary insight. I, uh, it seems to me he didn't get it on his own. Um, help us all to deepen our sight. Um, the work that we've been doing is to strengthen our reason in the hope that it gives more light to our faith. Um, that it deepens it so that we're more able to bring our faith to the world. The world doesn't know faith, by and large. It knows reason. And so many of its faiths are misguided. In our faith, we connect faith and reason. So all that we've been learning is meant to strengthen our powers of vision to see into the natural world where you are. John saw that when he said, Behold the Lamb of God. He saw everything. So strengthen um, our powers of vision, deepen our faith, help us all um, to give ourselves to what these men have to offer 
and help us to take it to the world and risk ourselves. Um, each according to our way. We're not all John the Baptist, but each in our way to, um, to live you, bring you to the world. I ask for a special blessing on Meredith's father-in-law. Is it Robert? Bob? Huh? Ed? On Ed, um, forgive his sins, wash away his sins if there's a time in purgatory. <laughs> we, we hear people say all the time, poor people in purgatory. I, can, I cannot relate to that. To be in purgatory means you're on your way to heaven. There's no doubt anymore. Not going to be but a joy. Let the joy be great if there's a time in purgatory. And let our sins, our, sorry, our prayers help wash away his sins, speed his time. For, sorry, Todd, Todd yeah, um, for his treatment, um, um, help his body to be receptive, um, surround him with your protection. Um, when all of us have these experiences of our mortality, a sickness or a weakness or a hospitalization, it reminds us of how fragile our world is and to put things into perspective. So let it be a time of growing closer to you. Let that be so for Connie, I'm sorry, his name, Rob? Robert, yeah. Let it be so for Robert as well. Um, I think I know um, serious parishioner, um, protect him, keep him safe, let the operation go well, and um, let all that's happening deepen his faith in you. We offer these prayers in your name, oh, no sorry, and ask for a special blessing on um, Kay and David's daughter. Watch over her. In some ways, um, be close to Kay and David. They've been watching over her for a long time. Let their hearts be glad in you, trust in you, whatever happens. We're all going to die. Um, and let them bring you to her and um, grow closer to you in all that's happening. But watch over her. Um, um, your will be done. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, let's do the poems. <laughs> Doug, I don't think you saw this, but um, Ten minutes ago, Karen came here and turned this stand the right side up so it could hold papers. Well, I, I was going to say, if the two of you weren't married, you should be married. <laughs> the way you, the way both of you keep me on, or try to keep me honest. Whatever. Let's do. Um, let's do Hopkins. I wake and feel the fell of dark, not day. We've done Hopkins before. You know we've done the, um, the Wreck of the Deutschland, we did the Wind Hover, we've done a couple of other poems. This is one of his darker poems. Uh, so, and as my custom, I, I just will make a few brief comments and leave it. Um, remember that Hopkins writes in the Italian sonnet generally, there's 
an octave of eight lines for two quartets, and then a sestet with six lines. The octave usually presents an experience. It's, it's an actual dramatization, something's going on. And then the sestet offers a reflection. So in one sense, the form reflects our being as human beings. We perceive something, we experience it as an experience, just like Suzanne's walking right here giving Karen, you know, it's, it's happening, it's not an idea, it's here. So the octave presents an experience just as it, we experience it through our senses, but then in the sestet, the poet reflects on it, so his mind is doing something more. Um, so I wake and feel the fell of dark, not day. I wake and feel the fell of dark, not day. What hours, oh what black hours we have spent this night. What sights you heart saw, ways you went, and more must in yet longer lights delay. With witness I speak this, but where I say hours, I mean years, mean life. And my lament is cries countless, cries like dead letters sent to dearest him that lives, alas, away. It's an appeal to Christ. He's a priest. He, he often grieves about his life, his soul, the suffering, his closeness, his faults, his failings. And there are moments, like the moments all of us have at times, when we experience a darkness. It may even be a despair, particularly if we're looking at our sins. It, sometimes our sins can be overwhelming to us, even if we go to church all the time. But he wakes and feels the fell of dark day, something descending, a real darkness. I am gall, I am heartburn. God's most deep decree, bitter, would have me taste. My taste was me, bones built in me, flesh filled, blood brimmed the curse. Self yeast of spirit, a dull dough sours. If he's too full of himself like a dough, the self yeast, the preoccupation with himself, sours it like a dough. We all know, but particularly in times of grief or despair, if we're feeling bad about our sins, we become so preoccupied with ourselves that the dough sours. I mean, we can't let that go on. The, the, he gives us this yeast to grow. He allows these things so that we can grow. Self-yeast of spirit, a dull dough sours. I see the lost are like this, and they're scourged to be as I am mine. They're sweating selves, but worse. He sees other people going through the same thing. It deepens his sorrow. I see the lost are like this, and they're scourged to be as I am mine. He's his own scourge. His sins scourge him. They're sweating selves, but worse because he's a priest. So where he feels his sins and even sees similar sins in others, he's still gonna feel they're worse than him because he's called himself to God, okay? We'll do, we'll do uh, Hopkins and Richard, Richard Wilbur next week. We'll stay with them. getting too easy. I shouldn't say that. 
Um, I want to start tonight with um, two basic sort of reflections on what we've been doing. One on reason and the other on poetry. Um, I'm trusting that by now all of you have come to appreciate the powers, our natural powers of reason more than you had before, if you didn't before, um, because you've been watching um, three popes and a couple of great apologists using their powers of reason. And we're ending right now with Chesterton's Orthodoxy, which to me is one of the most amazing books I've ever read, because in this one small volume, Chesterton, I, I don't know of anybody who's done this, he's taken on every major disorder in the modern world, every intellectual disorder. He's named them. Ch Chesterton is amazing in a sense. He didn't grow up sitting on his faith. He didn't sit on a couch and go to church and say, this is my faith and, you know, go to work and do whatever he did. He grew up aware that all these people were making these arguments. And I think because of his just peculiar gifts, he saw that there was something wrong with them. He didn't ignore them. He didn't just say, this is my belief, they're wrong. He saw that there, the, the danger of those positions were that they influenced people, that they were appealing to the same powers of reason and other people, yeah? So they're growing, that's the way the modern mind sees things. Chesterton grew up realizing there's something wrong with that, it's not quite right. He didn't leave it there, he didn't let it sit. As he grew, he found himself being challenged by these um, philosophies. And he began to see that something was wrong with him, and he began to use his powers of reason to answer them. Now that's absolutely crucial because what it says is men can use their powers of reason to convince us of certain things, which means we can also use our powers of reason to answer them. So a Catholic, I'm making a stand here, a Catholic can no longer just sit on his laurels or take it that he's got the right faith, he's going to he's going to experience salvation, he's been asked to stand up and live his faith. Um, Pope Francis said, in his, early in his papacy, he said he, he called the church out of the pews, out of the pews, into the streets, to live the faith. That wasn't Chesterton's motive when he wrote Orthodoxy. He, he grew up a Christian, he was Unitarian, his family was Unitarian, so it was a very liberal family. Um, he didn't convert until 20 years after he wrote Orthodoxy. But my contention is you know that he's, he's already Catholic writing Orthodoxy when he doesn't even know it. Everything he does in his mind derives from the soundness of the Apostles' Creed, even though he doesn't make that a big deal. But the important point to see here is um, the way he uses his powers of reason to show the world there's something wrong with it. And every time he does that, he does that in a way to show us there's something right with Christianity, with orthodoxy. Orthodoxy, the Catholic, then, and by that I mean Catholicism, not the Protestant world, not the fundamentalists, not all the different denominations, the Catholic center, orthodoxy. He never does that without showing that orthodoxy had already answered him that there, there are these profound sources of rationality in our faith. Who knows them today? In catechism, who's teaching them? 
So people are taking our faith for granted and the church is losing members. Um, so the wonderful thing about the writers that we've been reading is that um, it, certainly in uh, Abolition of Man and Orthodoxy we've got two men they both are grounded in literature, they both love stories, they both write poetry. Um, making probably the best defense of Catholicism in the modern world. Chesterton's taken on every, every philosophy to show that while it presents itself as being the truth, it's not the truth, and not only is it not the truth, it's a form of enslavement and oppression but it's only in the church um, that we have freedom. So he's one of the greatest defenders of freedom. And I love his, his uh, chapter titles. I don't want to go over them tonight, but, or I don't want to go over them all, but just think of the, um, t the title of chapter eight, Romance of Orthodoxy. The argument he's making is one of the instincts, one of the basic instincts of, of men and women is love of adventure. We all know that. Love of adventure. There can be no adventure in the world if there's not something to lose. Right? If, if, if everything is chaos and there's no meaning to things, then it doesn't matter what we do. We can do anything we want. There's no morality. There's no laws. There's nothing to lose. For there to be any sense of romance or adventure, there has to be a law, a creed, something to lose. So think about that title, Romance of Orthodoxy. It's like him. It's, it just perfectly expresses what he's saying. He says, the real romance in life is trying to hold ourselves to our vows. That's how he ends the chapter. Um, it's an adventure because we can make decisions sometimes that threaten us or break them or hurt us or wound us. And, you know. So the first thing to say is that the work that we've been doing has been an affirmation of our natural powers of reason. They are a gift in the Catholic faith. They're a great part of our inheritance and it's inheritance that's being lost. The work we're doing is trying to recover it. Um, I think you're all brave souls. The second um, is this proposition and, and um, Joya expresses it in the essay that I, um, that I mentioned in the note that I sent you. Dana Joya is, uh, is an American poet. He's Catholic. Um, um, he's a wonderful poet. Um, Bush appointed him to be the director of the National Endowment of Arts in the Humanities in Washington. It's, it's, a, it's an organization, an, um, a federal organization that supports the arts. He went out into the streets. He, he wrote a grant to go out, out in the, um, in the um, project streets in the slums to teach Shakespeare. He was successful. I remember when I graduated, or when I was doing my undergraduate or my um, master's at UCLA, I read a book, I don't remember what the writer's name was, I think it was called 26 Children, I can't remember. He was teaching kid in grammar school to read Shakespeare. They loved him. It can be done. If you go into a modern school today, you'll hear all the women say, oh, don't do that, you can't, think too hard, it's over their heads, or um, Goya went out into the streets and slot taught slum kids Shakespeare and they loved him. He's done numerous things to promote the arts, music, poetry, he's written librettas and poems, okay. 
He wrote an essay for First Things in which he's making the argument that it's impossible to understand the Catholic faith without poetry. I, I just want to tell you, I, I did not start all of this inspired by him. I started all of this because I, you know, several years we, several years ago, we, we came across this art. Suzanne religiously reads first things. It's a really good journal, um, but I just think it's so appropriate um, because it's, 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 it's something most Catholics wouldn't would not think. I'm trusting that you all know better now. I just want to read the first page from this essay, okay? He says, this is um, Christianity and Poetry um, by jo um, Goya. Um, I, I can't remember the date in First Things, but... Most Christians misunderstand the relationship of poetry to their faith. They considered an admirable but minor aspect of religious practice, elegant verbal decoration in honor of the divine. They recognize poetry's place in worship. Congregations need hymns and the Psalms should be recited. A few cultural believers even advocate the spiritual benefit of reading religious verse. But most Christians have a more practical and morally urgent sense of their faith. Who has time for poetry? I'm so proud of you guys. I so admire. Who has time for poetry when so many important things need to be done? Art is a luxury. Perhaps I can hear fathers. I think I used this anecdote before, because you know, at working at a college, you deal with undergraduates, and you see your parent, their parents, always on college day. And I, you know, I can hear parents saying to their kids, "Major in English? Are you kidding? Do something practical." <laughs> God, I want It's a good. It's a good thing I don't pack a gun. Those moments. <laughs> Who has time for poetry when so many important things need to be done? Art's a luxury, perhaps even a distraction, not a necessity. I'm so amazed at you guys. Gird up thy loins like grown-up and put away childish things, including the charming flippery of verse. Such attitudes misconstrue both poetry and worship. I want to say this now instead of waiting at the end, because you've heard me say this before, but it's appropriate in this context. Poetry is a mode of art whose medium is words. The ultimate source of words is the word. I cannot myself imagine Christ doing anything in heaven that isn't beautiful and well-ordered. If we all make it to heaven, I'm assuming that all of us will look on at him in astonishment at the beauty and order and truth that man itself, manifests itself from him. Poetry gives us a glimpse of that. Such attitudes misconstrue both poetry and worship. Christianity may be many things, but it is not prosaic. Poetry is not merely important to Christianity. It's an essential, inextricable, and necessary aspect of religious faith and practice. The fact that most Christians would consider that assertion absurd does not invalidate it. Their disagreement only demonstrates how remote the contemporary church has become from its own origins. Almost everything in the Old Testament, you all know this, almost everything in the Old Testament is written in verse. The verse forms are explicit in the Psalms, 
but almost everything's in verse. The Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, you've all read them, are in verse. Show me a Shakespearean play that's not written in verse. The disagreement only demonstrates how remote the contemporary church has become from its own origins. It also suggests that sacred poetry is so interwoven into the fabric of scripture and worship as to become invisible. At the risk of offending most believers, it's necessary to state a simple but unacknowledged truth. It's impossible to understand the full glory of Christianity without understanding its poetry. Wow. It's what we've been doing. Why should anybody believe such a claim? Let's start with scripture, the universal foundation of Christianity. There would be no Christianity without scripture. It's the basis of our faith, or it would be a terribly weakened faith. No believer can ignore the curious fact that one third of the Bible is written in verse. Sacred poetry is not confined to the Psalms, the Song of Psalms, Lamentations. The prophetic verts are written mostly in verse. The wisdom books, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes are all poems each in a different genre. There are also poetic passages in the five books of Moses and the latter histories. Prose passages suddenly break into lyric celebration or lamentation to mark an important event. When we go to a funeral, there's music. That's not artificial, it's the only way to, we can bring a dignity to the pain we feel. Otherwise the pain would overwhelm us. It gives an order, a beauty and a dignity to our emotions. When David, triumphant in battle, learns that Saul and Jonathan have perished, he mourns his beloved opponents and cries out, The beauty of Israel is slain upon thy high places. How art thy mighty fallen? His lament unfolds into one of the great elegies of the Western canon. The Old Testament is full of such lyric moments, often spoken by women who use poetry to voice their deepest feelings. When the widowed Ruth begs to stay with her mother-in-law Naomi, she expresses herself in words that transform the emotional nature of the narrative. Until now, the two women have been just figures in an old story. Suddenly, they come alive as loving and suffering human beings. I'd say more than that, that they can only rise to the full dignity of their grief by expressing it the way they do. Because otherwise, you know that our feelings sometimes just overwhelm us and slide off into chaos, disordered emotion. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God, my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, the more so, if aught but death part thee and me. And those are the words we remember from that story. <laughs> yeah, good. I'll stop there. Um, he says... Um, continuing a bit, these ancient Hebrew and Aramaic poems remain vividly present in English. And remember, their first real translation in English came in the King James Bible. If any of you have read it, it's, the, the beauty is incomparable. Um, it's at a time when almost everything was written in verse. Um, so we can go on and on. The, the point that I just want to make is that um, I got it, Doug. I get it. Okay. 
Um, I was I was talking to Suzanne the other night at dinner and asking her um, to imagine heaven. <laughs> she was quiet on it for a while and finally I offered a thought of my own. I'm sure that I couldn't have had this thought without Dante, but um, you know that when we go to church, we are invited into a sacred space. It's set up um, architecturally um, to image heaven some way. And that the liturgy unfolds in um, sections that are deliberate because they bring a certain order. The liturgy of the word, the liturgy of the host, you know, the saying goodbye. Everything that takes place both in readings and in, in enactment, because we enact, we actually enact the passion we go up to receive. In that moment, if we, if we don't see ourselves as dying with Christ, in some ways sharing in his death, it seems to me we're not fully taking the Eucharist. But it's all an ordered poem. It's all ordered. The, the song, the music, the actions are all ordered. I get a little bit upset sometimes when Eucharist, because I, I shouldn't do this, but sometimes Eucharistic ministers are made to sort of march up in line in unison. It drives me nuts because I think that's going too far. But the Mass itself, you, you can't let the Mass go, I mean, slip into chaos. Picture going into heaven. Can you picture anything in heaven that isn't perfectly musical or poetical? Whatever words we speak, if we speak words, I mean, we've got to have a language that we all understand or something's got to happen so that people from different languages will understand each other. There's got to be an underlying beauty in order to the words of music because that's the nature of heaven. And um, you know how important stories have been for our work together because the basis of it from the beginning has been stories. We started with Shakespeare. We went to the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, all of that. I asked Suzanne, because I prayed um, often to the late and the older I got, to the people who've meant most in my life. I can name a couple of people who've been involved with Catholic schools, because you know that. I, we didn't grow up Catholic. And I said, I'm thinking about John, Jean, Louise, people who've meant things to me. So when we go there, will John and Louise and, and uh, Jean, our mothers and fathers, our parents, will they greet us? Will they be the first ones? Because I'm imagining billions of people. There are all these people from Asia that I don't know, peasants, kings, you know, aristocrats from Africa, people from the streets. Some people who are going to survive gangs will be there. Who will greet us? It's hard for me to imagine without seeing those who love us greeting us saying welcome. I don't know that. But we should never forget we're there for Christ, not them. Whatever happens, whatever happens with these billions of people, my sense is that somehow when, when sorry, taking the time with this, I'd probably ask you to do this. You do it better than I do it, but there's going to be billions of people that I don't know. How will it be possible for anybody, remember Dante's line, um, where in the presence of God, where there's no natural law, 
Neither nearness nor distance added or took away. I'll repeat it. Neither nearness nor distance added or took away when you're in the presence of God. Natural law does not apply anymore, right? We did this when we did Dante. So if there's somebody three blocks away, I may be able to faintly make them out and say, that may be Suzanne. In heaven, that cannot be. Somebody, a mil, a mil, there's no million miles, but let's say somebody infinitely away is going to be as clear as they were up front. So somehow heaven is going to be this, like the multiplication of the fishes, it's going to be a multiplication of stories that we're going to engage each other and somehow something will happen to let us know the story of our lives, who we are. But what will unify us all is Christ. So no matter how different the stories are, there's got to be a harmony, something that will... So I can't imagine a greater exemplar, a greater archetype for stories than heaven. All the stories that we do, particularly those in, in verse, Shakespeare, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the poems that we read, are giving us a glimpse, helping us to experience something of the beauty and art of our faith. That's my... So when Joya says that the connection between poet, it's the connection between um, poetry and our faith is real and essential, he's not just being verbal. You guys are doing something rare. Like, you know, I can't say enough of that, that you're even here sort of amazes me week by week. But you're taking in a rich tradition that's deep in beauty and order and truth, depths of experience, and all of them in some way are looking towards Christ. Every work we've read. And I, I don't want to dwell on this. I've got a time limit that I've got to be careful of. Um, Remember when we did the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Aeneid, the three great epics of the ancient world, three the, three, the greatest works of the ancient world. In, well, you can include the you know, um, Aeschylus's Oristia and Sophocles, the Oedipus. Those are they were in verse as well. But the Iliad, the Odyssey, and the Aeneid all ended with a Perusia action, the Perusia, the return of the king. The whole Old Testament is pointing toward, I mean, the new, the Revelation is pointing towards when, end times, when Christ's return. Revelation ends, come, come, bride, come. It's all pointing towards the end of time, when Christ will come in power and judgment. How did the Iliad and the Odyssey of the Aeneid end? With a Perusia action. The kings returning in power and judgment. Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas bringing power and judgment. They're like images, foreshadowings of Christ. So everything we've been reading is a celebration of beauty and art. It's, it's at the center of our religion. We shouldn't take that for granted when we're in the mass. No matter how bad the priests are, no matter how bad the homilies are, or people talking around us, we shouldn't forget that. I'm going to end this with just one more. I don't know if I told you this. I think I may have when it happened. Um, I can't remember what it was, but it was a break, and we went out to um, Dallas, to, and we had mass. I think it was our graduation of one of our kids. It was supposed to be a child's mass. Did I tell you guys this? It was a mass. 
And there was a man in the family that went to kids because all the kids were in the mass. They were running the mass. It was a children's mass. He was drinking car coffee from Starbucks. Did I tell you about this? Boy, I can't. Okay, I won't go through it. Okay, I'll stop here. My wife's going, yes, yes. <laughs> That's the reason for me to keep going. Let me stop. Um, let's do, um, let's take a look at, um, at um, Romance of Orthodoxy. Any comments or questions on poetry or reason? Um, what this work on reason has meant to you guys? Or, oh, here's, here's the challenge. Sorry, I was going to put a real serious challenge to you guys. If, if you found yourself lacking in being able to defend your faith before, you can't have that excuse anymore. <laughs> I've just taken it away. That's a, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm laughing, but it's a, it's a challenge offered pretty seriously. I'm trusting that all, all that we've done together has strengthened your understanding of our faith. That your powers of reason are greater than they were before. So that if you're meeting with somebody, you're, you're in a better position now to use your mind to make a defense, to explain what's going on in our faith than you would have been three months ago. So no excuses. <laughs> yeah? I mean, don't you feel that way, that something's happened, that you're... that there's this amazing treasury of rationality of reason in God himself? Christ made it available. It's, it's in our... It's in our nature. Most of the world destroys it. They want to make of us something that we're not. But if we see our nature as something good, one aspect of it is these powers of reason. They're Faith and reason are meant to go together. Anyway, any comments or... I have three quick ones. Go, go ahead. This afternoon I was struck. I was got bogged down reading uh, comments about literature and all these people slamming Christianity and I was just thinking how glad I was to be able to come here on this evening and be with people who feel the same way. Eat good food. I do. Yes. 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 Yeah. Another two very quick comments going back to what you said earlier. Being a good University of Dallas girl, I taught children for 33 years and opened every single day with poetry. And in terms of don't major in English, my husband, the engineer, has brought me for the last 47 years. Every time he sends out a business letter, brings it to me to read over. You're right. <laughs> I don't know where Suzanne should be here for this. She and her roommate were English majors. I think I've told you this word. The two of them were English majors, and um, neither one of them went on to English. Suzanne went into social work, and her roommate Jane went into a law. And the heads of the departments in the graduate programs they entered, both of them said, you're in a position to do better than most other people because most other people coming from other fields don't know how to read or write. But because they had a background in English, they were better prepared to work in law and so wherever they go. Anyway, okay, any other comments? Wrote the book. That's totally amazing. He wrote it in 1908. He was born in 74. 
Is that right? I didn't. Yeah, he was 34 years old. Yeah. I was the idiot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mary. <laughs> oh. Mary, you shouldn't feel bad. I'm almost 80 and I'm still an idiot, so you shouldn't be feeling bad at all. I started learning about my faith because I'm cradle Catholic from 50 generations back. Uh, we were living in Charlotte, North Carolina, and the uh, evangelical people, whatever, they would always come knocking on the door. Right. Be three or four of them, they want to talk about Jesus. And I decided that I was going to go after them. <laughs> so, I didn't ever know what to say. Big surprise, big surprise. And I started learning about my faith so that I could. Yeah. Because being, being, if you're raised Catholic, you don't study your faith because all your cousins, your grandmas, your everybody around you is Catholic. Nobody questions it. I never had to question it. Yeah, yeah. Went to Catholic school. And yeah, went right. Right. So I started learning about it. Well, they must have gotten into it because it never came to my house. <laughs> After that, <laughs> I believe it. So I'm just amazed that he was 34 when he wrote the book. Yeah, I didn't know that. I would have put him younger, but yeah, amazing man. Just a truly amazing man. The last time the Jehovah's Witness came to our house, um, they asked if, if they were bothering me, and I said, No, I was just reading my literature. And they said, literature? And I said, yeah, you ought to go back and read Shakespeare and read all these things and look for where Christ speaks to you. And they were like, okay. Okay, let's let's start. Um, just by way of review, very, very quickly. Some of the major points we touched on last week and some of the major lines of thinking that um, govern what people do with their minds today. One of them is not what's called nominalism. You know that. Nominalism means that um, there are no real universals. There are only names. So a word like justice or chair, let's take chair because it was one of Chesterton's example. Those are only names. Generic names. There are no entities that are universal. Everything's particular. The only things that are real are, are things of matter, particular things. This stand, this mic, Mary, Suzanne, all of us, yeah? Because look, I mean, that's, so, that's a, such an obvious truism. When you look at each other, you say, David and Kay, they're, they're different human beings. Bob and Karen, you know, we're, there's only particulars. So matter is the only basis of reality. There are no universals. And I've said in our modern world, I think almost everybody growing up in the modern world is nominalistic without knowing it. You don't live with any sense that there are universals. It was a major controversy during the Middle Ages because to be a nominalist meant you deny the Trinity or Godhead, really, because they're universal, they're infinite, they're, they're, they don't have a body. So if there, are no, if there are no universals and everything's particular, you can do whatever you want. There's no, there's no reason not to bring a chainsaw in and cut down every tree in the forest. There's only particulars. There's no moral code guiding you. If what's driving you is economic interest, you're going to cut down all the trees because you, you will make beds, you will make houses, you will make money. Are you all following? You can do whatever you want. 
There are only particulars. If there's only particulars, there's no moral guideline. There's no such thing as justice, abstractly considered. It's one of the things we saw. It was a major concern for Chester. When he dealt with all the critics and the criticism that he, they made of Christianity, he discovered at some point, finally, that what they were doing was revealing more about themselves than Christianity, because one would say Christ is um, a glutton. Another one would say he's an ascetic. He starves himself. And what you began to learn is that those critics were revealing something about their own standards, what's in their own heads, than they were about Christianity. So learning to see um, the assumptions that a person makes in whatever judgments he makes. We also saw there was that wonderful line when he said he realized, when he's talking about the uh, optimist and the pessimist, that one of them thought everything was bad and every one of them thought everything was good and neither one was an adequate philosophy. We're dealing with reforms. If everything's bad, you have no reason for changing it. If everything's good, you have no reason for changing it. If everything's bad, in fact, you have a reason for destroying it. He found out that both of them were adequate. It's only when he realized what the church had taught him, that this is not our home, that this is a place where we're undergoing constant conversions, that our home is elsewhere. And as soon as he recognized that, he felt at home. He didn't have to make everything fine here. It was in his final place. So the people who see the earth as the final resting place will usually make it a graveyard. They'll try to make of it something it's not. He also said that one of the things he learned from Christianity that he didn't learn from pagans, the pagans got it close because the pagans, Aristotle is the model for him and clearly Chesterton admires him. Um, humans grow up with extremes. We're inclined to do one thing at extreme or another extreme. Virtue, according to Aristotle, is the mean between those. We have to learn to see what our own extremes are because they're different for each of us. And then we have the struggle of trying to correct them, to learn to become virtuous. Um, but he said, what he learned from Christianity is that the danger was that if you took two extremes and put them together, a black and a white, you'd get a gray, or a white and a rose, you'd get a pink. And he said, that is not what Christianity is doing, because usually what it means is one thing cancels out the other. The problem facing Christians is how do you keep both of those things full board? How do you get really angry enough to chop off somebody's head and still love them? That's a harder thing to do. Yeah? Because you know if you lose your temper, it's easy to just blow it and lose it all together or resign yourself altogether. It's much harder, let's say, to get angry about something and still love something, to hold it together. For any real progress, he said, three, three, three things are required for us to make any progress in life, for us to change ourselves, for us to become better at all, for us to become more virtuous. And by the way, I, just, I want to understand, the church calls us to virtue. The Protestant world will not. The church calls us to natural virtue. The natural virtues are justice, fortitude, prudence, temperance. Justice, fortitude, prudence, temperance. We're supposed to be practicing those virtues in everything we do to try to be temperate, be restrained in eating and drinking, be just, give others what's due, fortitude, hold on when things get tough, be prudent, 
don't um, presume, you know, don't be stupid and tempt God. Um, those are the natural virtues. They're in nature, that's in our nature. We perfect those natural virtues with supernatural virtues, faith, hope, and charity. And every one of those requires that we completely give up ourselves so that while we're practicing temperance, fortitude, prudence, while we're endeavoring to be virtuous, we have to learn to put ourselves away. To have faith when there's no reason to have faith, to have hope when there's, things are hopeless, to love when there's no reason to love. We're supposed to be growing in virtue. That means every day we should be changing. We should be working to get better. The name of Chesterton's chapter was The Eternal Revolution. If we measure ourselves, I hope this is clear, if we measure ourselves against attorney, how can we not be changing every day? Because we're setting ourselves against something that's unchanging. We're going to be changing all of our life. Are we Christ? Are we fulfilled in Christ yet? I, I'm going to speak for myself here. I, I know I'm not. I mean, I'm assuming I won't be even on the day that I die. Eternal revolution implies an ongoing change. Our church calls us to keep growing. The first ideal for any real progress, three things are required. The first is the ideal must be fixed. If, the, if, if our ideal is progress and the idea of progress keeps shifting, we'll never get anywhere because we keep changing the end. The ideal has to be fixed and eternal. It must be composite. It must be com a combination of things. Meekness and courage have to go together. If one cancels out the other, let's say, let's say it's meekness and courage, just to take two. He says, for change we have to pull things together in a proportion. To draw things into a proportion means we have to have a mind. We have to understand what the proportion would be, just like an art. By the way, stop and think about this. How many artworks, modern artworks, take the principle that there is no proportion, that everything's disproportion cacophonous? It's harsh sounding, it's disfigured, it's chaotic. There is no proportion, there's no beauty, there is no order because there's no order or beauty to the universe. I don't know how the universe came to acquire such beauty and order unless there was somebody who ordered it. Because <laughs> design implies an intelligence. So we're supposed to use our intelligence to order ourselves, to bring things into their proper proportion. If, if we're too bold, to step back. If we're too meek, to step forward. You know, to, to see that that's a struggle and a source of joy because it's like taking medicine. If we're doing these things, we should be getting better. The, the, the more virtuous we are, this is Aristotle, the more virtuous we are, the more joy we take in what we do. And finally, he said we must be watchful that the tendency of the human soul is to backslide. There's a danger in being too comfortable, there's a danger um, in being rich, and being settled, because if we ever get settled, we tend to let things slide and ignore things, and then things go to pot. Um, I want to just end on, I think one of the things we ended on, and then I'm going to turn to try to quickly do um, Romance of Orthodoxy. Chetron is particularly um, <laughs> mm -hmm. 
energetic in criticizing aristocracies and socialism. He's very critical of aristocracies. He says aristocracy is not something that's a sin. It's not, it's not a social class, it's a sin. He calls it a sin. He's very critical of aristocracies and he's very critical of socialism. Um, I just want to take a minute with the latter one because we talked about it at the end, but I just want to emphasize it because it seems to me it's, it's a very serious danger for us as a democracy today. What's his criticism of socialism? He says that the pro one, of the, one of the problems, just one of the problems of socialism is that it tends to descend into aristocracy. I just want to be clear. Is everybody clear on why that's so? Anybody? Yes, it's like the point of Sorry, speak up. It was the point of Everybody may not have read Animal Farm. Can you make that clear to everybody? Well, yes, um, you've heard the phrase, all are equal and some are more equal than others. <laughs> there, there will always be some nomenclature here, some privileged group sets right. themselves apart. Right. So it's based on a lot. Right, right. Because there are inequalities. Not everybody is the same. We, somebody's a better basketball player than another. Somebody's a better musician, you know, I mean. But we live in a democracy in which we're supposed to be encouraging inequalities, but not use a political system to keep somebody from becoming whatever he is. Um, anybody else on that? Go ahead. Can you speak up? Administer the rules to delegate all this right. equality. Right. Yeah, how do you get a socialism if, if you've lived in a democracy and we and it declines and we lose it? Who are going to be the ones to form the socialism, the new socialistic state? Who will they be? Michael, go ahead. Did you have a If, I mean, just to take Michael's example, if you had a government which saw its responsibility to make everything equal so that it would give better housing to people who don't have it or give better education, the assumption is that if you do away with class distinctions so that there are no differences between classes, you'll do away with envy, you'll do away with pride, people will get along, that the cause of crime and sins or inequalities you know, political inequalities. What are some of the implied dark side effects behind a government wanting to make everything equal, give everybody the same housing, or, you know, I mean, you're saying that the government wants to elevate everybody. 
but to do that they've also got to decrease lots of people because the people who have talent who would have wanted to do more can't do more so it's it's a it's I mean the assumption is that not just that you're going to raise people but you've got to take away what other people have in order to do that but what are some of the kind what what would be some of the effects of those on human beings living in that kind of a a few years ago, we were visiting Slovakia. And we were told that they have universal college education. 17% go because they say, why should I put in four years of work and study, and when I come out, I won't be any higher than everyone else. So you kill that initiative. Yeah, if the government does everything for you, if it gives you everything, and you, you don't have an incentive to do things for yourself, it just it, it it it's a serious question whether there's it encourages people to take less responsibility for their own lives because the government's doing everything for them. Um, go ahead. I was just to say that there's always the risk of the government side too, because once you know that you can do this and you can you can protect your people, let's say. I mean, you start getting to. Um, you know, believing that you can do everything, and then that class also starts getting, um, you know, immoral. You yeah. know, start taking bribes. You yep. 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 It doesn't answer. I mean, Chesterton's one of his principal starting points is original sin. It does not answer. I mean, socialists are going to deny it anyway. They're going to say the the cause of evil among men is um, environment or heredity. Chesterton says if you don't start with original sin, you won't get anywhere. Because if you do all of that, it doesn't. The, you can't use the wealthy as an as a standard. Because if you look at the wealthy, they're some of the most worst. They're some of the morally depraved people in the world. Wealth does not make you better. In fact, he spends half a chapter saying the, the one thing the church has put itself against forever is the wealthy. Um, wealth can spoil. It can corrupt you. One of the dangers of socialism is. I mean, Cecilia just touched on it, but. There, there's got to be a ruling class, somebody in the government. The tendency is if they've got that power to become corrupt in it. They rule everything. They govern it. In a, in a socialistic world, there's no opposition party. If the government controls everything, it controls the means of expression. There's a problem with our language, too. So we talk about the government. We always hear the government doing this and the government doing that. The government is nothing. It's individuals. I wish the people in Washington understood that that way, Chuck. <laughs> God, we've got a lot of government officials who are doing things that I wish they weren't doing today. But let's stop. I mean, you see, the, the, oh, I, I ended with this question: If he's right that all socialisms tend um, to move in the direction of some aristocracy, even if it's buried. Given our current atmosphere, if we moved in the direction of socialism, or, or, yeah, and our socialistic government implied an aristocracy, a governing class, who would make up that governing class in our world? Is everybody clear on that? Good blue suit, or the guy over here in the jeans? Say again, Bob. Who would like to say who's going to dictate that? Right. Who is it? Now, as the people of Washington. They want to dictate that. But most of us out here don't want them to dictate Telling that. you what to do with your young. We have our own mind. So how are they going to control the thinking process of anybody? So even in this group right here, 
we all have a little different thought of where we're in, any kind of position. So, and that may change tomorrow. So it keeps changing like that. You can't, you can't try to make everybody eat. Yeah. You know that C.S. Lewis's answer to that, I think it's, Ch you can see Lewis, Lewis got it from Chesterton. C.S. Lewis's answer to that, it would be the, those who think they're the most educated. It would be the conditioners, because they're the ones who know. Truly, it's, so the aristocracy in England was the well-born, the wealthy, you know, the, through, the, through the, the dynastic line, the bloodline. That established the, the landed class. In India, it was a religious line. Chester to put those two against each other to make clear how different they were. What would they be in America? I think in the modern world, I think this is what Lewis was arguing against, abolition of man. It will be the educators, those who think they know the psyche, who can create this world because they think this is the world the way it should be, and other people don't see it. They'll have to be re-educated, they'll have to be taught. Remember he said, the one class works on the trunk of the tree, on what is. The other is going to work completely outside of it. They're going to create their own world. Yeah, you got the same thing. If you got somebody that has job experience and somebody that has an educated book experience, those are two different things. They mm -hmm. all come to it every time. Yeah. And so if you take the person with the book or knowledge or whatever things he's going to, which they do in business, they hire a new person in that's out of college. Right. 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 Buckley once said, and I agree with him, he said, when he thought about who should rule, and he says this, I think he said, the, the person, the one that should rule is the one person who thinks he shouldn't rule, like Moses, or, you know, the, because the person who thinks he's a rule, I mean, he's the one you ought to be careful of because he's probably got a lot of vanity and pride, and Buckley was being comic. Well, comical, but I think he's being truthful. He said, if he had to decide on how to choose a person for an office, he would, he would open up the phone book arbitrarily, run down with his finger, not look and just stop on a name. He did not want somebody who was well-educated to rule because sometimes those are the worst, the best educated people because they, they're so full of themselves, are the ones least, least able to serve because there should be an aspect of serving to any good rule. Okay, let's look at the last chapter. On page, or it's my 308, the, um, the argument that he's been making is um, up to this point, that every modern ideology presents itself as being the truth or a source of freedom, when as a matter of fact he's saying that it's not, none of them contain the truth and all of them are various forms of oppression or enslavement that what they do is enslave people so that the materials, for example, chains himself to the idea that nothing is real but matter. So we lose our free will. We can't believe in miracles. Um, we can't believe that there's something more than matter. Every one of them he's gone through. We've gone through them, I think, pretty thoroughly. In the second page in this chapter, 
um, he's going to fall back on um, sorry on um, four major views of the world. Um, so he's just continuing with the same argument, but picking up some things that he's already gonna go, he's gone over before, but he's gonna elaborate. He says that for a person to, he, he says that one of the difficulties in the modern world is that we confuse um, lots of things. He, he said, um, he talks about energy, and he makes the point that he says at the beginning of the page, it's customary to complain of the bustle and strenuousness of our epic. But he says the truth of the fact is that we're lazy people and all you have to do is look at the street where it's all busy with cars because in those cars nobody's doing anything. Somebody's doing something for them. And he uses another example when he says um, words do this too. We don't even, God, we don't, here's poetry again, we don't bother in what we do with words. And I, this is so true, and anybody who works in the business world knows this. If you live in the business world for a long time, thinking thoughts work for you, that a way of thinking is already imposed on you. It, you accept those ideas because they're part of your world. You constantly get people asking you to think outside of the box, but most of the thinking is inside the box. It's already done for you. He gives the example of um, one of the ironies of the modern world, he says, um, we know that they are carrying thousands who are too tired or too indolent to walk. Um, it's a good exercise to try for once in a way to express any opinion one holds in words of one syllable. People think to be educated today, you've got to use words of, that are polysyllabic, many syllables. God. Because if you use one syllable, it's a sign you're not educated. You've got to use big words. He says, I love this. The very first page of Romance of Orthodoxy. If you say the social utility of the indeterminate sentence is recognized by all criminologists as a part of our sociological evolution towards a more humane and scientific view of punishment, you can go on talking like that for hours and hardly, <laughs> with hardly a movement of the gray matter inside your skull. God, I love that line. <laughs> Everybody, just quickly, look at that sentence. What is, what is the person speaking those words trying to say. And Chesterton gives it, but I, if you can... What's he... The social utility of the indeterminate sentence, that is the judge making an indeterminate sentence on somebody who's accused of something, let's say. Of the indeterminate sentence is recognized by all criminologists as part of the, our sociological evolution towards a more humane and scientific... That is, if we're, if we're more indetermined, if we're less certain, if it shows we're... Um, if we're in a gray area, that it shows that we're more compassionate towards a criminal. We're less likely to come down on him hard. Um, um, he says, <laughs> you can go on like that for hours with um, hardly a movement of the gray matter inside your skull. But if you begin, I wish Jones to go to jail and Brown to say when shows come out. Then condemn the guy and put a sentence on him and court dismissed. You know. But that's not what happens. People have got to give all these psychological reasons and they're going to do it in the name of these humane theories that if you do this, it'll show how much more humane. We turn criminals back out on the street. He said, the long words are not the hard words, it's the short words that are hard. There's much more metaphysical subtlety in the word damn 
than the word degeneration because you know for a monist, for a materialist, matter just keeps disintegrating, right? So the only thing we need to worry about in this world is we're materialists is that we're just all disintegrating. If there's a spiritual dimension to your life, you'll know that one of the great dangers of our life is that we might be damned at the end. So Chester just giving examples of the way in which we're caught with these contradictions and paradoxes. And he gives us the final conclusion to this opening, the use of the word liberal, because he says most people associate being liberal with being um, more fair-minded, more committed to freedom. And he's going to go on to show that that is not the case, that as a matter of fact, the people who present themselves as being liberal, as a matter of fact, are um, among the most illiberal people in the world. He wrote this in 1908. This is a full century later. I hope everybody's appreciating the irony. The, the stark irony of that, that the people who call themselves liberal are the most liberal in the world. And he's going to take on four modern movements that, that show that underneath there are all forms of enslavement. He's going to look at um, monism, that is materialism, pantheism, Arianism, and necessity. Um, I want to go over these quickly. I don't want to spend too much time because you've all read it. You all know what monism is, right? The word monism just means one. Mono, monistic, mo. It means one. A monist is somebody who holds that there's only one principle of life. And they would say it's matter. There's nothing real that isn't material. The only reality is matter. Okay? Aristotle says that form and matter have to come together, and that's too subtle. A, a, I don't even want to go into the principle. Um, it's, it's closer to actually some of the things that modern physicists are doing, but it's like potency and something real, and when they come together, they form a real thing like a cup or a person. Or, but a person is made up of form and matter. Matter, matter is the principle of individuation. It's what makes, I've gone through this before, if you take a, a tree, if you take a, a, a lock of cloth, it's the same cloth, but you can cut in the same button, the, the same pattern, right? The difference between them is not the form, the form is the same, the difference between them is, is the matter from which each one comes. Is that clear? You can take a tree and make wooden buttons. Every button has the, a dollar bill is a better example. Every dollar bill is the same, right? What distinguishes one dollar bill from the other is the material out of which it's made. So matter is the principle of individuation. The form is what that, what that thing is in a species, a horse, a person, a cow, a table. A, um, so monism simply means the principle that um, there's only one thing. And you, you know his arguments. He's gone through them. I, I love, he says that these people believe that there's nothing but matter. There's no free will because matter determines everything. Um, I love this. I'll just read this. This is a couple pages in. It's in the paragraph that says, of the fact and evidence of the supernatural, I speak here afterwards. He says, the, the difference between a spiritualist and a materialist is um, the materialist is not free to believe in miracles. The spiritualist is free to believe in matter. He's also free to believe in 
miracles. It's a much larger world. Um, but I love this discussion. He says, here only we're concerned with this clear point, that insofar as the liberal idea of freedom can be said to be on either side in the discussion about miracles, it's obviously on the side of miracles. Reform, progress means simply the gradual control of matter by mind. A miracle simply means the swift control of matter by mind. I love that. I hope everybody, I mean, it's coming. Because who's working the miracle? God. God. Right? So, <laughs> um, he's saying if we're going to liberal, the tendency to liberalize religion is in the modern world is the tendency to put chains on it. That it's only by becoming more orthodox and going to its center that people become free. So he takes on um, monism and then he takes on pantheism. Pan means all. Pantheism means God is in nature. So pantheism simply means um, God is nature. He's present in nature, in everything. Um, but he associates pantheism with um, immanentism and Buddhism. Immanentism means everything is inward, and he's arguing that Buddhism and theosophy um, are forms of pantheism. What's the problem with, um, with pantheism? Do you remember his argument? I want to try to go through these quickly if I can. Mm -hmm. You don't recognize that he's bigger and better than all of them? Yeah. And also that it means all things are sort of equal. I mean, one tree is no different from another, or they're all, you know, you have no way of distinguishing between one thing and another. Um, he, he distinguishes Buddhism from Christianity on the basis of saying that Buddhas, the Buddhist, the Buddhism, the Buddha statue always has his eyes closed. He's always looking inward. He says the great beauty of Christianity in the saints, visualized, imaged in the saints, is they're always their eyes are stark open because they're facing violence. They're looking outward. Um, I wish he I wish he'd connected transcendence. He, he says over and over again that the fundamental distinguishing mark of Christianity is transcendence. That God separated the world so that people could learn to love one another. A woman has to separate from a child to learn to let it go, to love it. If she keeps holding on to it, she's gonna make it herself. You can do the same thing in a marriage. In a marriage, we're called together as two individuals to come together as one, but be the best that we can be of each other to be one, but we're different. So in imminentism, we go inward, it leads to introspection, um, Isolation, quietism, he names a couple of things like that. I, th I think from, I, you know, introspection is not a bad thing, but it can become bad when that's your modus operandi, that's all you do. I think about the modern world and the way that the modern world has turned in on itself. The driving force of so much modernity is self-pity, despair, isolation, that when you turn inward, the danger is becoming self-absorbed self-pity, despair. It's important to turn inward because we've got to learn about ourselves and turn outward too. There's something transcendent. So it's, to me, it's a powerful argument for holding on to the importance of transcendence for changing our inner lives.
Right. Right. What did he say? What's his argument, Connie? Right. Right. The fun, what he's been doing the entire book, entire book, he said in in non-essentials they may look the same, but if you look at the essentials, the dogma they couldn't be more different. What's at issue with Christianity is dogma, and the center of a dogma ours is the Trinity, the fact that the second per this you can't separate them in our dogma. These are the essential dogmas of our faith, the Trinity and the Incarnation. The second person of the Trinity, so Islam, Judaism, do not believe in the divinity of Christ. That's where we're going right now. I want to get there because I want, I want to ask them what from your aren't questions. They, do not, they de deny the divinity of Christ. They say he's this great prophet. He came, the Messiah was going to come to save the Jewish people. The Messiah is going to come to save Islam. But they saw, both of those people saw that Messiah in terms of a powerful king who's going to come in political terms, using power, worldly things, to, con to conquer the Romans, the occupying power, okay? Um, what's different about the two is their dogma, the dogma, the belief in the Trinity, in the Incarnation, the crucifixion and resurrection, the communion of saints and the sacraments, but that's at the heart of Christianity. And no other religion on the earth has those dogmas. The whole book has been a defense of the Athanasian Creed, or the Apostles' Creed. The final one, he says necessity, and I, I, we don't need to go into that because, you know, necessity, if things are necessarily what they are, there's nothing to do about them. No free will, there's no incentive to change. If things are necessary, you can't do anything about them anyway. I want to go to the last one. This is at the, in the very last couple of pages in the paragraph that begins. Lastly, this truth is yet true in the case of the common modern attempts to diminish or explain away the divinity of Christ. The thing may be true or not. I want to read this because to me, the fundamental difference between Christianity and Judaism and Islam is the divinity of Christ. Islam and Judaism both believe that Christ was a prophet. They both believed in a Messiah, that somebody would come. The Jews far more because it's far more part of their tradition. So the one thing separating them is this attempt to make Christ human. And by the way, I just want to say this. The tendency, God, I just, it's just, if you look at the Old and New Testaments, you hear people talking about the Old Testament in terms of this angry God. And Christ as if he's this nice guy. Christ is often... <laughs> I, 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 I can't remember passage in which I would describe Christ as being a nice guy. Or a buddy. He, he loves his disciples. He's teaching. He is often severe. He's often angry. Or not often, but he gets angry a good number of times. He gets angry at his disciples, he gets angry at the Jews, he gets angry at Peter, um, he gets angry at the money changers in the temple. He's severe a lot. And Chesterton's going to end describing him with mirth, which I love, but, but people describe the Old Testament as an angry God and New Testament like he's this charitable God and, you know. Chesterton here is taking on this tendency to make Christ merely human, a buddy, a good guy, just a good prophet. 
But here's what he says, and I want to focus our discussion here if I can. If you, if you follow the reading, if you go to that chapter, that paragraph, it, lastly, this truth, the tendency to take away Christ's divinity. The thing may be true or not, that I shall do with before I end. He's going to um, tackle that in the next chapter. But if the divinity is true, it is certainly a terribly revolutionary. That a good man may have his back to the wall is no more than we knew already. But that a God could have his back to the wall is a boast for the insurgents forever. Christianity is the only religion on earth that has felt the omnipotence made God incomplete. Having all that power, there's something wrong with him. Christianity alone has felt that God to be holy God must have been a rebel as well as a king. Alone of all the creeds, Christianity has added courage to the virtues of the Creator. For the only courage worth calling a courage necessarily mean the soul passes a breaking point and does not break. In this indeed I approach the matter more dark and awful than it's easy to discuss. And he apologizes. He talks about God being tempting himself in the garden. Go down below. Um, it's written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. That's God speaking. No, but the Lord thy God may tempt himself, and it seems as if this is what happened in Gethsemane. In a garden, Satan tempted man, and in a garden, this by right, Garden of Eden, in a garden, God tempted God. He passed into some superhuman manner through our human horror of pessimism. When the world shook, and the sun was wiped out of heaven. It was not at the crucifixion, but at the cry from the cross, the cry which confessed that God was forsaken of God, because he looks up and says, why have you forsaken me? That's God. It'd be interesting to see what we do when we get to Matthew, John, and Revelation, but these can be called the essentials of the old orthodoxy, of which the chief merit is that it's the natural fountain of revolution and reform. His whole argument is, if we're going to change the world to make it better, we have got to stay at the center of the church because everything else is taking it away. Now, I want to, I want to spend what time we have left on this question. What's wrong with Arianism, with taking away the divinity of Christ? And let me try to focus it some if I can. Judaism and Islam make the law everything. Right? So if you live up to the law, you're a righteous man. If you fall away from the law, you're condemned for both, church, for, of both faiths. Would you agree? The law, the law is essential for both. They believe that the Messiah is going to come, he will say, but it will be according to the law because neither one of them believes in the divinity of Christ. Christ came to fulfill the law, not to break it. And yet he's describing God here as this great revolutionary, that God's doing something not even man could do. What's wrong with denying Christ's divinity? And, and indirectly, it's going to go to the question, what is it that Judaism's lacking in basing itself on the law? What is Islam lacking? And, but that's a secondary question. My question is, what's wrong with denying Christ's divinity? Every one of his arguments has been showing that each one of these creeds, these beliefs, presents itself as being freed and the truth. And he showed, he's used his powers of reason in every case, the monism, pantheism, necessity. Now he's looking at Arianism. 
He's saying each one offers itself as the truth, as liberating, and there's only one that's the truth. The others are forms of oppression and slavery. What's wrong with taking away the divinity of Christ? I'd like to spend what time we left tackling that question because it's the center of our faith. If I can stop you just there, that's because um, in abstractly considered, yes, but the um, adherents of Judaism and Islam would disagree immediately. They'd say, but there's only one Messiah. He will come, so nobody else can come. They will say that man will be, um, it, that man will, will not have a divine, divine nature, but he will be sent by God. He won't be anybody else. So they take that away. But can you, can you, with that qualification, can you go anywhere with that? Because both of them are going to say, this Messiah is not just any man, and he won't be followed by another one. This is the Messiah sent by God, except that he's not divine. Christianity says, no other one will ever come again. It was sent by God, except he is divine. He has a divine human nature. What happens if we take away the divinity of God? So, he's been talking about reform, the importance of our freedom, our free will, the importance of changing, of growing in our faith, of learning. All along, that's been, right? I mean, I think that's a fair summary of orthodoxy. The maniac, the suicide, you know, suicide of thought. He's been tackling all of these modern ways of thinking that are taking our freedom, compromising our nature, our integrity. And here at the end, in the next to the last chapter, he's gone through these four creeds, these belief systems, and the last one is Arianism, the denial of... By the way, you know that that was one of the earliest heresies, so he's using that. What's, what's wrong... If, if we're trying to have a better life... So, if, if, all, sorry, if, if we're all involved in eternal revolution, all right, last chapter, an eternal revolution, we're trying to make the world better, we're trying to make ourselves better, trying to have better families, better marriages, a better culture, whatever it is, What's wrong if we take away the divinity of Christ? Mike, did you have something? Uh, Arianism, if, if, uh, if Just taking away the divinity. Leave it taken away. Then, then it was not God on the cross. It was just another man who, who was uh, unjustly convicted and executed. Who cares? What's the difference? Where are you going? How? Why not? Because God offered himself as a blood sacrifice. How does he do it in a way that an ordinary man could not? The difference being... Original sin? Go ahead, Mary. I'm just... Well, that was to atone for original sin and bring man back into... Well, pick up Mike's point. It, it's not... It, it's just not another ordinary man, but why couldn't it be an ordinary man? What is Christ doing on the cross that an ordinary man on the cross is not doing? Well, that was taking away the original, atoning for the original 
How does that affect all of us? Or help us in our changes, how we live our lives? Because we have hope of life with God. We don't have to, the law. Sorry? It's our faith, I mean. But flesh it out. <laughs> Are we on the right track? Yeah, I mean, well, of course. <laughs> Who cares? What does it matter? Why? Sorry, speak up, Doc. Does everybody here, can everybody hear Suzanne? How does that change the way we live our lives with each other? What difference would that make? So Judaism is going to say, if you live according to the law, you're being obedient to God. You're being good. You're being godly. So would Islam. What, what difference would it make in the way we live our, our lives with another person? If somebody committed a sin against us or we wanted to get better, what difference would it make? Um, in what we're doing. Well, something I always remember is Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And um, how is that different from somebody who's Islamic or Judaic, Jewish? Because the, the, both Jews and Islams would say. Um, that Allah's well, they, I mean, so does Christians. I mean, but um, both they'd say God is merciful. They'd say forgiveness is part of our religion. The Jews would say that. The Muslims would say that. The difference between those and somebody who's Christian is what the divinity of Christ is absolutely crucial to everything in our faith. It is the one, in one sense, it's the one fundamental thing that distinguishes us from Judaism and, I mean, there's lots, but at least at the center of a dogma, but. Robert? No, I look like. I'm trying to get my head around that, and that's, because you go from having, you talk about the law, you're trying to obey the law, basically you're trying to work your way. No, no, this is no, no, no. You can try again, Susan. Are you kidding me? And we're going home together. To me, that's funny. Just what you said, 
which binds us. We're bound to the law, but Christ set us free through the church, through the, his his divinity on the cross, and so the church he set up is divine because he was divine. How does that change the way we behave from the way somebody Jewish or Islamic? Because, Mira, I, you're not saying that the law is irrelevant or justice is irrelevant for a Catholic. No, I'm not. The difference is what? I don't know. Higher standards above the law? Like, you know, as a Catholic, you know you're saved. You know, you know the salvation is there. So you, your attitude goes towards just keeping that. For the other, for the uh, Jews, I mean, they, they still wait. They don't, they don't have anything. Nothing has finished. They're still going. Would Chester agree with what Olivia just said? Cecilia. Or sorry, Cecilia. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He said one of the things that, one of the things that, the, that he's fighting against is the tendency to be safe, to think we're safe. He says if, if one of the most important things for us as Catholics is we have to realize that every moment we could be damned, that we're not damned, like the Calvinists, because he's strenuously arguing against that. He says um, that we could lose ourselves, that at any moment, wait, we, we believe Christ offered us salvation. Um, by the way, the Jewish people believe that God offered them salvation. If they're obedient to the law, Islam believes that their faith will earn them salvation. It's just a simple belief. They both have practices to do. Chesterton said, be on guard about, sorry, where did, be on guard about um, taking things for, he said, it's, um, it was one of those wonderful lines last week when he said, we have to be held to our vows. And we have to feel that any moment we can lose them. We, we have to be awake alert because we can slip in our faith. He says here, the hero must be an um, estimable hero. We believe that all men are created good. We're wounded. We do not believe they're all damned. We don't. So Christian morals have always said to the man, not that he should lose his soul, but that he must take care that he didn't. In Christians, morals ensured it's wicked to call a man damned, Calvin, but it's strictly religious and philosophical to call him damnable. We can lose our souls up until the end. We all believe in salvation. The Jews do. So do Islam. But the difference between us is Christ, the, his divinity, and um, all that we're talking about. But I just want to be... I, want, I really just think this is important to... Because it, so often I think we take this for granted. It's our, as, a matter, as a matter of fact, here, I mean, one of, one of my concerns is certainly a concern as me as a person. It's certainly a, con it's a concern for me as a teacher. Um, that um, it was my opening comment on reason. It's so, I think, it's, it's a temptation. I'm going to go out on a limb here. I think it's a real temptation for Catholics um, because they, knew, they know they've got the truth and they're aware that they have it in a way that Jews and Protestants and they know they've got something nobody else has. That's the Catholic faith. To the degree that you're aware of that, you can sit on it. You can take it for granted. It's my faith. 
I mean, I, my opening remarks were, Francis called it out of the pews, Chester, I'm, my opening challenge was, we should be able to make a greater defense. Can we go out into the world now better prepared to witness to Christ with our minds? Because if we just sit on our faith knowing that we're saved, there's a real danger for us. So the question here is, what difference does this dogma in our faith make for the way that we live our lives with each other, in our marriages, in our families, in our world. I'll stop because it's, I, I hope you guys another 10 minutes already, unless you want to take, I'm glad to pick this. In fact, let's stop. I'd like everybody to think about this pretty seriously. Read over this last two pages that I just read on the Aryan. Remember there's four things, monism, pantheism, necessity, and Arianism. He's using Arianism not in the sense that the early church fathers, it's an, it, you know, Arius had this belief that God was, um, or Christ was all human, not God. It was an early heresy, the church had to fight it. He's using that, it's really amazing to watch him work, he's using that because he knows of that past, but he's applying it to a modern world that has basically taken away Christ's divinity. Almost all secular people believe in Christ. They don't doubt. I'm, I'm, I'm going to hear it. This has got to be taken seriously. Most modern, any intelligent person is not going to disbelieve in Christ. He's historically real. We've got documents. And, you, and it, they don't just depend on scripture. There are histories of Romans and everything that went on at the time showing there was this guy but we know that the modern tense, we, we know this from Benedict's lecture, that there was that guy who looked at scripture in terms of new scientific methods and concluded that Christ had no divinity in him. That, that's the modern tendency. Lots of Christians see Christ in a way that takes away all miracles. I gave you the example of one of the um, the head of the religious department of the school where I taught, explained them all away, denied them. He's a Christian. There are lots of Christians who believe, there are lots of secular people, they don't deny Christ. What they do deny is his divinity. What's the trouble with denying Christ's divinity? Let's wait till next week. No? They do. I mean, I'm not, I, I can't remember the conversation I had because I, I was so upset when I learned. But people do. They can rationalize away. They'll, they'll say something about the way it was covered or the people who believe this way. You can't believe it. Scientific theories today show us that can't be. I mean, that's one of his arguments that if you, if you approach this with materialist beliefs, you're going to read that way. So you're going to say there's got to be some other explanation. These people were superstitious, so that's the way they saw it. Anybody in this room who believes that is just being foolish? Let's pick up here and plan to finish nine. But I want to, I want to pick up with this question, it would be interesting, I really am looking forward to hearing what you guys do with this thinking about. Islam believes in a Messiah, so does Judaism. Both of them believe that Messiah will be sent by God as a savior for both Islam and for the Jewish world. 
neither religion believes that that Messiah will be divine. We believe that the Messiah has already come. This was John Paul's argument, if you can hold on for a minute. John Paul's argument was all the mysteries of the kingdom have been revealed. Christ said, in me you see my Father. If you don't see him, you don't know him. All the mysteries were there. Here, John Paul, sorry, I'm delaying and I'm already past my time. John, Paul said, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. Hear that again. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. Faith means to believe in something which we have not seen. Hmm? According to Paul, but we have evidence of it and we hope for it. Yeah? Here's the diff one of the differences between Islam and Judaism. We saw God. He's available to our senses. If, he's, if he made himself available to his senses, what does that mean for our powers of reason? Our knowing him is not just a matter of faith. Reason, reason is that power we use to work with what our senses give us. Nothing gets into our mind that doesn't come from our senses. We can only know what our bodies receive. One of the reasons we have faith in God is because faith has to do with those things unseen. Except what happened with Christianity? What happened with Christianity was there for the Jewish world, was there for the Islamic world. He came, we saw him. He was present to our senses and therefore our powers of reason. We should be able to use our powers of reason and our faith to see something. Our faith in things that we can't see yet. But there are lots of things we know. Okay? So when we think about God, we, we look at things in a way completely different from the Jewish or, or uh, Islamic world. We believe God's come. John Paul said, all the, he's the, that was his opening chapter, the revealer of the kingdom. He's revealed everything. It's all there. Christ said, it's all here. It's here. The kingdom's here. What does that do? What should that do for our faith in a way that cannot be so for somebody who denies Christ's divinity? So the question I'm asking is, and goes directly to our faith, and the connection between our faith and reason. What difference do these things in the way we live our lives, in our marriages, in our families, in our work, what we do? Okay, is that clear? I'm really looking forward to this, more than I can tell you. More than I can tell you. I'd like to hear what you guys do. So next week, we'll start with that question, and then we'll finish orthodoxy. Okay.